Clearshore presents Innovation, Change, and the Rest of Your Life by Steve Blank, May 9th, 2017 at steveblank.com. I gave an alumni talk at UC Santa Cruz and had a few things to say about innovation. Even though I live just up the coast, I've never had the opportunity to start a talk by saying, Go banana slugs! I'm honored for the opportunity to speak here today. We're standing 15 air miles away from the epicenter of technology innovation, the home of some of the most valuable and fastest growing companies in the world. I've spent my life in innovation, eight startups in 21 years, and the last 15 years in academia teaching it. I lived through the time when working in my first job in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we had to get out a map to find out that San Jose was not only in Puerto Rico, but there was a city with that same name in California. And that's where my plane ticket ought to take me to install some computer equipment. Thirty-nine years ago, I got on that plane and never went back. I've seen the valley grow from Sunnyside to Santa Clara to today where it stretches from San Jose to south of Market in San Francisco. I've watched the valley go from Microwave Valley to Defense Valley to Silicon Valley to Internet Valley, and to today when its major product is simply innovation. And I've been lucky enough to watch innovation happen not only in hardware and software, but in life sciences, in therapeutics, medical devices, diagnostics, and now digital health. I've been asked to talk today about the future of innovation. Typically, that involves giving you a list of hot technologies to pay attention to. Technologies like machine learning. The applications that will pour out of this just one technology will transform every industry, from autonomous vehicles to automated radiology oncology diagnostics. Equally transformative on the life sciences side, CRISPR and CAS enable rapid editing of the genome, and that will change life sciences as radically as machine intelligence. But today's talk about the future of innovation is not about these technologies, or the applications or the new industries they will spawn. In fact, it's not about any specific new technologies. The future of innovation is really about seven changes that have made innovation itself possible in a way that never existed before. We've created a world where innovation is not just each hot new technology, but a perpetual motion machine. So how did this happen? Where is it going? Silicon Valley emerged by the surreptitious intersection of Cold War research in microwaves and electronics at Stanford University, a Stanford dean of engineering who encouraged startup culture over pure academic research, Cold War military and intelligence funding driving microwave and military products for the defense industry in the 1950s, a single Bell Labs researcher deciding to start his semiconductor company next to Stanford in the 1950s, which led to the wave of semiconductor startups in the 1960s and 70s, the emergence of venture capital as a professional industry, the personal computer revolution in the 1980s, the rise of the internet in the 1990s, and finally, the wave of internet commerce applications in the first decade of the 21st century, and the flood of risk capital into startups at a size and scale that was not only unimaginable at its start, but in the middle of the 20th century would have seemed laughable. Up until the beginning of this century, the pattern for the valley seemed to be clear. Each new wave of innovation, 
microwaves, defense, silicon, disk drives, PCs, internet, therapeutics, was like punctuated equilibrium. Just when you thought the wave had run its course into stasis, there emerged a sudden shift and a radical change into a new family of technology. But in the 20th century, there were barriers to entrepreneurship. In the last century, while startups continued to innovate in each new wave of technology, the rate of innovation was constrained by limitations we only now can understand. Startups in the past were constrained by, one, customers were initially the government and large companies and they adopted technology slowly, two, long technology development cycles, how long it takes to get from idea to product, three, disposable founders, four, the high cost of getting to first customers, how many dollars to build the product, five, the structure of the venture capital industry. There were a limited number of VC firms, each needing to invest millions per startup. Six, the failure rate of new ventures. Startups had no formal rules and acted like smaller versions of large companies. And seven, the information and expertise about how to build startups. Information was clustered in specific regions like Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, etc. And there were no books, blogs, or YouTube videos about entrepreneurship. What we're now seeing is the democratization of entrepreneurship. What's happening today is something more profound than a change in technology. What's happening is that these seven limits to startups and innovation have been removed. The first thing that's changed is that consumer internet and genomics are driving innovation at scale. In the 1950s and 60s, U.S. defense and intelligence organizations drove the pace of innovation in Silicon Valley by providing research and development dollars to universities, and defense companies built weapon systems that used the Valley's first microwave devices and semiconductor components. In the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, momentum shifted to the enterprise as large businesses supported innovation in PCs, communications hardware, and enterprise software. Government and the enterprise are now followers rather than leaders. Today, for hardware and software, it's consumers, specifically consumer internet companies. These are the drivers of innovation. When the product and channel are bits, adoption by tens and hundreds of millions and even billions of users can happen in years versus decades. For life sciences, it was the Genetech IPO in 1980 that proved to investors that life science startups could make them a ton of money. The second thing that's changed is that we're now compressing the product development life cycle. In the 20th century startups I was part of, the time to build a first product release was measured in years as we turned out the founder's vision of what customers wanted. This meant building every possible feature the founding team envisioned into a monolithic release of the product. Yet, time after time, after the product shipped, startups would find that customers didn't want or use most of the features. The founders were simply wrong about their assumptions about customer needs. It turns out the term visionary founder was usually a synonym for someone who was hallucinating. The effort that went into making all those unused features was wasted. Today, startups build products differently. Instead of building the maximum number of features, founders treat their vision as a series of untested hypotheses, then get out of the building and test a minimum feature set in the shortest period of time. 
This lets them deliver a series of minimum viable products to customers in a fraction of the time. For products that are simply bits delivered over the web, a first product can be shipped in weeks rather than years. The third thing is that founders need to run the company longer. Today we take for granted new mobile apps and consumer devices appearing seemingly overnight, reaching tens of millions of users and just as quickly falling out of favor. But in the 20th century, dominated by hardware, software, and life sciences, technology swings inside an existing market happened slowly, taking years, not months. And while new markets were created, such as the desktop PC market, they were relatively infrequent. That meant that disposing of the founder and the startup culture responsible for the initial innovation didn't hurt a company's short-term or even mid-term prospects. So almost like clockwork, 20th century startups fired the innovators and founders when they scaled. A company could go public on its initial wave of innovation, then coast on its current technology for years. In this business environment, Hiring a new CEO who had experience growing a company around a single technical innovation was a rational decision for venture investors. That's no longer the case. The pace of technology change in the second decade of the 21st century is relentless. It's hard to think of a hardware, software, or life science technology that dominates its space for years. That means new companies face continuous disruption before their investors can cash out. To stay in business in the 21st century, startups must do three things their 20th century counterparts didn't. First, a company can no longer build on a single innovation. It needs to be continuously innovating. Who best to do that? The founders. Next, to continually innovate, companies need to operate at startup speed and cycle time much longer than their 20th century counterparts did. This requires retaining a startup culture for years, and who best to do that? The founders. And finally, continuous innovation requires the imagination and courage to challenge the initial hypotheses of your current business model, channel, cost, customers, products, supply chain, etc. This might mean competing with, and if necessary, killing your own products. Think of the relentless cycle of iPod, then iPhone innovation. Professional CEOs who excel at growing existing businesses find this extremely hard. Who best to do that? The founders. The fourth thing that's changed is that you can start a company on your laptop for thousands rather than millions of dollars. Startups traditionally required millions of dollars of funding just to get their first product to customers. A company developing software would have to buy computers and license software from other companies and hire staff to run and maintain it. A hardware startup had to spend money building prototypes and equipping a factory to manufacture the product. Today, open source software has slashed the cost of software development from millions of dollars to thousands. My students think of computing power as a utility like I think of electricity. They can get to more computing power via their laptop through Amazon Web Services than existed in the entire world when I started in Silicon Valley. And for consumer hardware, no startup has to build their own factory as the costs are absorbed by offshore manufacturers. China has simply become the factory. The cost of getting the first product out the door for an internet commerce startup has dropped by a factor of 100 or more in the last decade. 
Ironically, while the cost of getting the first product out the door has plummeted, it can now take tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to scale. The fifth change is the new structure of how startups get funded. The plummeting cost of getting a first product to market, particularly for internet startups, has shaken up the venture capital industry. Venture capital used to be a tight club clustered around formal firms located in Silicon Valley, Boston, and New York. While those firms are still there and getting larger, the pool of money that invests risk capital in startups has expanded and a new class of investors has emerged. First, venture capital and angel investing is no longer a U.S. or Eurocentric phenomenon. Risk capital has emerged in China, India, and other countries where risk-taking, innovation, and liquidity are encouraged on a scale previously only seen in the U.S. Second, new groups of VCs, super angels, smaller than the traditional multi-hundred million dollar VC fund, can make small investments necessary to get a consumer internet startup launched. These angels make lots of early bets and double down when early results appear. And the results do appear years earlier than in a traditional startup. Third, venture capital is now becoming founder-friendly. The 20th century VC was likely to have an MBA or finance background. A few, like John Dewar at Kleiner Perkins and Don Valentine at Sequoia, had operating experience in a large tech company. But out of the dot-com rubble, at the turn of the 21st century, new VCs entered the game, this time with startup experience. The watershed moment was in 2009, when the co-founder of Netscape, Mark Andreessen, formed a venture firm and started to invest in founders with the goal to teach them how to be CEOs for the long term. Andreessen realized that the game had changed. Continuous innovation was here to stay, and only founders, not hired execs, could play and win. Founder-friendly became a competitive advantage for his firm, Andreessen Horowitz. In a seller's market, other VCs adopted his invest-in-the-founder strategy. Fourth, in the last decade, corporate investors and hedge funds have jumped into later-stage investing with a passion. Their need to get into high-profile deals has driven late-stage valuations into unicorn territory. A unicorn is a startup with a market capitalization north of a billion dollars. What this means is that the emergence of incubators and super angels have dramatically expanded the sources of seed capital. VCs have now seeded more control to founders. Corporate investors and hedge funds have dramatically expanded the amount of money available, and the globalization of entrepreneurship means the worldwide pool of potential startups has increased at least 100-fold since the turn of this century. And today, there are over 200 startups worth over a billion dollars. Change number six is that starting a company means you no longer act like a big company. Since the turn of the century, there's been a radical shift in how startups thought of themselves. Until then, investors and entrepreneurs acted like startups were simply smaller versions of large companies. Everything a large company did, a startup should do. Write a business plan, hire sales, marketing, engineering, spec all the product features on day one, and build everything for a first big customership. We now understand that's wrong. Not kind of wrong, but going out of business wrong. What used to happen is you'd build the product, have a great launch event, Everyone high-five the VP of marketing for great press, and then at the first board meeting, ask the VP of sales how he was doing versus the sales plan. 
The response was inevitably, Graped Pipeline. Graped Pipeline means no real sales. This would continue for months, as customers weren't behaving as per the business plan. Meanwhile, every other department in the company would be making their plan, meaning the company was burning cash without bringing in revenue. Finally, the board would fire the VP of Sales. This cycle would continue, and then you'd fire the VP of Marketing, then the CEO. What we've learned is that while companies execute business models, startups search for a business model. It means that unlike in big companies, startups are guessing about who their customers are, what features they want, where and how they want to buy the product, how much they want to pay. We now understand that startups are just temporary organizations designed to search for a scalable and repeatable business model. We now have specific management tools to grow startups. Entrepreneurs first map their assumptions and then test these hypotheses with customers out in the field, customer development, and use an iterative and incremental development methodology, agile development, to build the product. When founders discover their assumptions are wrong, as they inevitably will, the result isn't a crisis. It's a learning event called a pivot and an opportunity to change the business model. The result? Startups now have tools that speed up the search for customers, reduce time to market, and slash the cost of development. I'm glad to have been part of the team inventing the Lean Startup methodology. Change number seven, the last one, is perhaps the most profound and the one students graduating today don't even recognize, and it's that information is everywhere. In the 20th century, learning the best practices of a startup CEO was limited by your coffee bandwidth. That is, you learned best practices from your board and by having coffee with other more experienced CEOs. Today, every founder can read all there is to know about running a startup online. Incubators and accelerators like Y Combinator have institutionalized experiential training in best practices product market fit, pivots, agile development, etc. Provide experienced and hands-on mentorship and offer a growing network of founding CEOs. The result is that today's CEOs have exponentially more information than their predecessors. This is ironically part of the problem. Reading about, hearing about, and learning about how to build a successful company is not the same as having done it. As we'll see, Information does not mean experience, maturity, or wisdom. The Entrepreneurial Singularity The barriers to entrepreneurship are not just being removed. In each case, they're being replaced by innovations that are speeding up each step, some by a factor of 10. And while innovation is moving at internet speed, it's not limited to just internet commerce startups. It has spread to the enterprise and ultimately, every other business segment. We're seeing the effect of Amazon on retailers. Malls are shutting down. Most students graduating today have no idea what a blockbuster record video store was. Many have never gotten their news from a physical newspaper. We are at the cusp of a revolution as important as the scientific and industrial revolution. What does it mean? Revolutions are not obvious when they happen. When James Watt started the Industrial Revolution with the steam engine in 1775, no one said, this is the day everything changes. When Carl Benz drove around Mannheim in 1885, 
No one said, there will be 500 million of these driving around in a century. And certainly in 1958, when Noyce and Kilby invented the integrated circuit, the idea of a quintillion, 10 to the 18th power, transistors being produced each year seemed ludicrous. It's possible that we'll look back on this decade as the beginning of our own revolution. We may remember this as the time when scientific discoveries and technological breakthroughs were integrated into the fabric of society faster than they had ever been before, when the speed of how business operated changed forever. As the time when we reinvented the American economy and our gross domestic product began to take off and the U.S. and the world reached a level of wealth never before seen. It may be the dawn of a new era for a new American economy built on entrepreneurship and innovation. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. We would like to hear from you, so please send your thoughts to comments at clearshore.us or visit us at clearshore.us. If you would like this show delivered to you automatically, you can subscribe to the Clearshore Podcasts on iTunes. Wishing you all the best until next time.